You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations about issues affecting our lives. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be with you for the next half hour. And thank you again to Black Noise Radio for their show today. As always, I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians and caretakers of this land, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Today on Listening Notes, filmmaker Alfred Peck will tell us about Freedom Street, a documentary about three refugees living in Indonesia, and how Australian policy has affected their lives. That's coming up later in the show. To begin, we're going to take a look at how China's commitment to carbon neutrality by 2060, announced at the UN General Assembly last month, will affect the federal government's plans for gas-led COVID-19 recovery. Here's Xi Jinping at the UN General Assembly. We aim to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. We call on all countries to pursue innovative, coordinated, green and open development for all, seize the historic opportunities presented by the new round of scientific and technological revolution and industrial transformation, achieve a green recovery of the world economy in the post-COVID era, and thus create a powerful force driving sustainable development. And that's the leader of China, Xi Jinping through a translator at the UN General Assembly last month, announcing China's intentions. So what does this mean for Australia's coal, gas and iron ore exports to China? How Tan and his colleagues have explored this question in an article entitled China Just Stunned the World with its Step Up on Climate Action and the Implications for Australia May Be Huge. Hao Tan is an associate professor with the Newcastle Business School at the University of Newcastle, and he has research interests in China's energy and resource transitions. I asked him whether he was surprised by Xi Jinping's announcement that he was committing his country to carbon neutrality by 2060. I was a bit surprised because before that announcement, uh, we didn't hear anything about this concept of carbon neutrality in any national policies in China. So that was a bit surprise. Can you just explain what China is talking about when it talks about net zero emissions? Just to be clear, what does it mean? Basically, in China, they need to have a deep cut of the use of um, fossil fuels. And that means um, a complete change of energy system and even the whole uh, economy, how the economy is run. It just sounds enormous. I think you say in your paper that China accounts for about 28% of global carbon emissions, which is double what the U.S. contributes. So this obviously is going to be a huge task. As you say in your paper, not just in China's energy system, but its entire economy. That's correct. 
So what does China have to do? What is the task in front of it? If other means of you know, carbon uh, removal uh, is not really uh, feasible at this moment, then China has to have a deep cut of its, um, its use of the fossil fuels. Basically, that means almost all coal-fired power stations have to be phased out. Road transport has to be based on electric vehicles. And also, uh, trains has to be powered by electricity, uh, which they are already doing that. In terms of uh, industries and manufacturing, so they have to probably reduce the level of some of the carbon-intensive or energy-intensive production. Uh, such as steel, uh, cement, and the chemicals. And the rest of them have to be powered by uh, green energy, renewable energy. At the moment, I understand that China isn't using a lot of renewable or green energy. Yes, it started from a very low base. So 10 years ago, there's uh, almost nothing in the energy mix uh, from, from solar and wind. About 10% of the electricity now is supplied by wind and solar. And if you add uh, hydroelectric power and nuclear, that, that share will increase to about uh, over 30%. So during the past 20 years, uh, renewable has grown at uh, average 35% per year. So that's, uh, that's huge, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, that's very rapid. But because it started from a very low base, and still the share of renewable in the energy system is still small. And to reach that point of carbon neutrality, then there's still a very significant work to be done. Yes. So what factors are likely to reduce China's energy demands in coming years? Are there some efficiencies that China can make? Yeah, definitely. Improvement of energy efficiency will definitely imply, and that trend will continue in building, in manufacturing, in transport. The energy efficiency rate will continue to, to improve. Uh, but that's not enough. Fossil fuel has to be reduced uh, at a very rapid rate. And renewable energy has to be ramped up even more. We were just saying that they have um, uh, taken up renewable energy very rapidly, but that rate still need to be increased in order to meet this goal. Yes. Well, you have said in your paper that China is in the process of writing its next five-year plan. So if it is serious, and we'll just talk about that in a minute, but if it is serious, this is an ideal opportunity to include the kinds of processes needed to achieve a net zero emissions. The five years plan uh, is a very serious document to guide policies and the national level and at local level. And this plan is currently being developed and I, I would think uh, there will be lots of uh, internal negotiations in terms of uh, different targets uh, and, and objectives. Uh, some of the objectives, um, are, for example, the renewable energy, some people are concerned that the objective will be uh, slowed down, the, the, the growth will be slowed down. But with this new announcement, uh, I would think um, there will be more ambitious objectives for renewable and also more ambitious goal for phasing out coal in this five-year plan. Yes, and you do say in your paper it's critically important for Australian industries and policymakers to assess the seriousness of China's pledge and the likelihood it will be delivered 
because it will affect investment plans for large mining projects. So I'm wondering, first of all, how serious do you think China's plans are? So that's why this five-year plan is very critical and we need to watch very closely uh, whether that will uh, have something tangible in place, uh, which can lead to a middle and long-term goals. Another very uh, crucial indicator is the carbon emission itself. We will watch closely the, the trend of carbon emission in China. China's carbon emission fell during the period between 2013 and 2017, but then it has rebounded a little bit recently. And this is a worrying. Whether this trend can be reversed is another very important indicator whether China is serious about this pledge. And if you've just joined us on 3CR, I'm speaking with Hao Tan from Newcastle University about China's commitment to net zero emissions by 2060. And as he says, there's two indicators that we need to watch. The new five-year plan currently being developed and also whether carbon emissions begin to come down. I asked Hao Tan if it was even feasible for China to meet its 2060 goal, whether the technology was there. It's feasible. It's not about technology. It's really about political will and whether the economy can adjust with such a large restructuring. And I think you've already indicated they'll need to act quickly too, which is where the five-year plan is going to be important. Exactly. What are the implications then for the much-hyped Morrison government's gas-led recovery? There is a very large implication for Australia, especially for our mining industry, which now are exporting a large portion of the product to China. 80% of our oil uh, is exported to China. And Australia's gas, a large proportion, is and will be exported to China, according to Morrison government's plan. If this commitment of China is serious, then this idea of exporting more iron ore, more coal, more gas to China uh, has to be reconsidered, has to be resisted, because potentially the demand wouldn't be there. I don't know if you've heard the news yet, but I just had flashing up on my phone a few hours ago a news item that was very incomplete, but it said that China has ordered a lot of its states not to buy coal from Australia, that a very specific instruction has gone out. And of course, there will be more. Did you, have you heard that yet? Not for this specific news item, but uh, this, this troubled relation, economic relation, political relation between Australia and, and China has been a while. And uh, right now it's in quite um, sour relationship. For that particular uh, development, it, I suspect it's Probably another drama in the relationship between Australia and China. Whether that links to this pledge of China to commit to net emission, I'm not 100% sure. But in the long run, I think uh, there will be implications to the trade between the two countries. So why do you think China has made this announcement at this time? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So first, I think to do more climate actions is China's interest for sure. Um, so China has developed a very competitive renewable energy sector. Solar panel, wind turbines from China 
is now kind of dominant in the global market. With this idea of having more clean energy technology, China has been able to develop a very uh, powerful industry sector. That's one uh, motivation. And second, that helps China with its uh, energy security because it can diversify its energy supply uh, from uh, uh, oil producing countries in Middle East. And third, it helps its local environment. You probably heard the air quality, the water in China has been problematic during the past decades. And now China is working on that to reduce the carbon emission, actually align with this objective. But beyond all those motivation, I think to make announcement at this time does have a, a consideration uh, involving to win support from the international community, uh, especially given those geopolitical conflicts going on between between China and and West. And as you can see, uh, Xi Jinping made the announcement in the United Nations Assembly meeting uh, rather than in the domestic occasions. To me, it's a clear indication that this announcement probably first and foremost was targeting an international audience. But regardless of that, I think it's still a very positive move. Um, so China does have, a, I think in my view, does have a motivation to gain international support in this very important area to kind of uh, counterbalance conflict with uh, other nations in other area. In the climate area, to give China uh, some credits, uh, China uh, does deliver. China's uh, commitments uh, in Paris Agreement now is going very well. The major commitments of China right now are delivered on schedule. Some of them are well ahead of schedule. Uh, given that track record, I'm kind of uh, confident about this commitment. How Tan, an associate professor with the Newcastle Business School at the University of Newcastle, and I'll put a link to his paper on the Listening Notes website. And throughout that conversation, I was reminded of my interview with Professor Peter Newman in August this year. Here's what Peter had to say about the federal government's investment in fossil fuels. That world is dying very rapidly. If they push that investment, that will be wasted. It will be stranded. Many of these gas developments are going to go bankrupt. They are not going to be able to proceed even with the kind of expansion that's built into projects they've got now. There's three or four times as much gas they're talking about producing. The world does not need that. They're going to say, Australia, get a life. Go and get some green hydrogen and we'll buy that. But we're not going to buy your contaminated, polluted gas. It's not what we need. And that was Professor Peter Newman. And if you want to find out more, just check out the Listening Notes podcast for August 24th and you can get the the full interview with Peter Newman. Coming up next, Freedom Street. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. 
Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. And we'll be speaking with Holly Hammond from the Commons Library next week on Listening Notes. But uh, don't wait till then. Check out their website and see what they've got to offer. You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard, and it's great to have you with us this afternoon. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Alfred Peck, a filmmaker, video journalist, and refugee advocate. Alfred is based in Sydney, and he's currently working on the documentary Freedom Street, about three refugees living in Makassar, Indonesia, and how Australia's policies are affecting their lives and the lives of around 14,000 refugees who are stuck in Indonesia. I began by asking Alfred Peck why he decided to get involved in this project. How did it all come about? When I was at uni in 2015, I was volunteering for a refugee advocacy group based in Sydney. I made videos for them, and eventually I learned a history about Australia's involvement in Indonesia, which is my former home country. I'm an Australian citizen now, but I grew up in Indonesia. So that's how I got into it. I learned more and more about the refugees' lives and the situations in Indonesia, and the financial and the policy side aspect to it. Upon discovering that around December 2017, early 2018, I said, okay, I'm going to try and do this, break down and uncover Australia's uh, refugee protection policies in its full context. Sounds from what you're saying, like you're digging deeply into it. and You've done a lot of background research before you even started. My background is in video journalism. I've always worked for someone else. This is my first big film project that I've ever done. Freedom Street is the story of Janayat, Ashfaq and Aziza, three refugees who are affected by the consequence of Australia's policy while deconstructing Australian policy in conversation with various experts. So you're speaking with uh, three refugees and you're also speaking with experts in the field. In Australia and Indonesia specifically, because that's where the most relevant experts are for this project. And when you say in Indonesia, are you speaking to people in the Indonesian government there or advocates that work in Indonesia? I spoke with an Indonesian researcher and one of the advocates there, who is also actually a refugee in Indonesia. Her name's Moshkan Mwarev. She is the founder of RAIC. RAIC stands for Refugee and Asylum Seeker Information Centre, literally the equivalent of Melbourne's ASRC. 
but in Jakarta, Indonesia. You've mentioned three people that are in it, and I noticed one is a young woman named Aziza. Can you tell me about Aziza? She's born stateless in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia in 2001. Aziza's mother comes from a minority in Myanmar called the Karen people, and her father is a Rohingya. They never actually became a true family unit because the mother and father separated when she was 10 months old. She grew up under her father's, I guess, nuance and guidance in Malaysia before eventually attempting to try to go to Australia. They weren't able to make it to Australia. They've been trapped in Indonesia ever since. My dream in the future is I want to be a teacher. I want to educate the kids that cannot study, um, like in a refugee situation, like I was. So I don't want another kid become, you know, they become useless because everyone needs education, and education is everybody's right. Zaziza talking about her dream of being a teacher. And she's one of the people featured in Alfred Peck's film, Freedom Street, about refugees living in limbo in Indonesia and how Australian policy keeps them there. I asked Alfred how the policy worked. Australia's last defence against people coming by boat is Indonesia. So if Australia actually incentivized Indonesia to keep the refugees there, they would effectively stop the boats. And Australia has successfully done that. Hundreds of millions of dollars to Indonesia since the year 2000 as well as many more millions covered under naval and military cooperation and so many other things. Australia has indirectly provided refugees shelter and places of accommodation, as well as funding immigration detention centres across Indonesia. And that's all been done through an organisation called International Organisation for Migration, an NGO that Australia funds. IOM's role in Indonesia is to maintain those um, refugee shelters and immigration detention centers. This is a global NGO body, and it has branches across many countries of the world. So they're a separate entity. The branch in Indonesia specifically is almost entirely funded by Australia. But there's a group of people, of refugees, who are not in IOM care. So tell me about them. Since March 2018, Australia basically stops funding any more refugees that comes to Indonesia. There are now about 5,000 of them who are just fully destitute. A lot of them have been living on the streets, mostly in Java. Most of them now are taken care of by other non-government organizations. And for a temporary period, they were also taken care of by some governing bodies in Indonesia. So they're not actually funded by Australia at all. How did they distinguish between who continued to be funded and who's not funded anymore? How did how was that decision made? If you arrive in Indonesia and you, be, you are found to be a refugee before March 2018, you are forced into immigration detention centers and or community shelters, and that allows uh, refugees to be under the IOM's care. If you arrive as a refugee or vetted to be a refugee after March 2018, and this was actually a policy in Australia. Australia made from Australia. You're fully destitute as a refugee. So let's come back to Freedom Street. You have three people featured in Freedom Street. How did you meet them? Through networks of refugee advocates in Australia, I was able to get in touch with them. 
get introduced to them online. And I develop uh, months of relationship before I actually meet them in person to do the film shoot. And how was it when you went to Indonesia? Was it easy to meet them and film? Were there any problems there? I wasn't actually allowed to film where they were. But because of my ambiguous Pan-Asian look, a lot of the people thought I was actually one of the Hazara refugees, which is bizarre for me because I'm Indonesian. I'm Chinese Indonesian. So it's very surreal in a lot of ways. I never expected to see something like this in my home country. I've only heard about refugees that arrived in Australia or the ones that are stuck in Manus and Nauru. And to have that realization, to have that confronted in front of me as an Indonesian in Indonesia from our tax money, it's just surreal. Just nothing like it. I just, I might have lost for words, to be honest. Yes, I can appreciate that. What are you hoping the documentary will achieve? What I want the documentary to be is a tool for advocates, change makers, and people who are passionate about making change in human rights. I want people to use my documentary as a tool of reference for their campaigns. The way to do that is not just to tell refugee stories. I want to contextualize Australia's border protection policy in its full history, going back from Australia's founding since colonial time to today. That's a huge brief. That's right. I didn't even mention about Australia's colonial foundation. That was actually brought up by the experts that I interviewed. Yes, well, I mean, for me, there's already new information. I'm sure people who follow the refugee issues closely will know about Indonesia. A lot of them are only aware of the situation in Manus and Nauru, as well as the mainland. What happens in Indonesia, Australia has basically washed their hands over. They've relinquished the legal requirements of it by funding these NGOs. It's a different way of um, absolving themselves. I think that's terrible. I mean, I'm Australian citizen, but Indonesia is also where I'm from. Both of my home countries are actually working in tandem to create this oppression. Uh, it's just unreal for me. Yes. And just one last question. The name of the film, Freedom Street, where does that come from? This is what disheartens me the most. Freedom Street was quite a literal translation from the very street name that these refugee accommodation, refugee hostels are based in the city of Makassar. When I saw the refugee hostels address, when I translated that into English, it literally means the pioneer of independence slash freedom. And that was referring to Indonesia's independence from the Dutch during its independence in 1945. This very street contains a dozen refugee hostels and this has quite literally become the dumping ground for refugees that are stuck in the city of Makassar in Indonesia. There's so many ironies there. As an Indonesian and an Australian, looking at this, this was a big sign for me. You, you have to do something about it. Obviously, funding is an issue for completing it. Do you have a, a funding campaign going at the moment? Yes, I do. And it's tax deductible. If you visit documentaryaustralia.com.au slash project, slash freedom dash street. There's actually a fundraising page there. If anything, why are we funding without tax money for oppression? Why don't we actually get tax deduction for actually creating a meaningful change? And that's a great pitch. When do you think we'll be able to see it? I realize how difficult it is to raise money. I know things are tough now for artists all over Australia. When do you hope it will be available? Hopefully mid next year, at least the final cuts. Alfred Peck a filmmaker, video journalist, and refugee advocate. And the link will also be on the Listening Notes website here at 3CR. And here's an excerpt from the trailer for Freedom Street. These are anti-democratic 
policies. They're lacking in transparency, they're lacking in accountability, they do not subscribe to principles of proportionality. They are highly expensive, and I'm a taxpayer as well. Most importantly, they're harmful to people. Do grateful that I am alive. Now, let me answer this question. Do we, as a human being, only to live just to survive? No. We, human beings, are autonomous creation. We have the ability to make difference. We want freedoms. We want to make our own position in this world system. From the trailer for Freedom Street. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And we're coming up to the end of Listening Notes. It's been great to have you with us today here on 3CR. And thank you to our guests, Hao Tan and Alfred Peck. And stay tuned, because Diaspora Blues is coming up next, and it's been nominated for a National Community Radio Award. So we're all very excited, and congratulations to Basto and Bigwa and Ayan. Take care, stay safe, and I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.